0: This is not the media. This is hell.
1: Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell, your daily completely listener-supported source of agita. Well, not daily this week, as I was out yesterday, which I'll tell you a little bit. More about later on this morning's show. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth Radio Show Podcast Live Stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. How's your week going so far? Alex, I'm sure that it's going better than mine.
0: Oh, yeah, my tum's fine. <laughs> uh, although, you ever get the feeling that uh, people who are making a lot of money off of selling socialism to people maybe aren't being the most honest about socialism? <laughs> Just starting to suspect that in the last couple weeks. So,
1: uh, does that mean we're honest about it thanks. we don't make any money.
0: No, we're not selling any money.
1: <laughs> I see. Just asking questions over here. Today, through economic coercion, wages and conditions of work are controlled by the employer and used to compel workers to work. But increasingly, within neoliberalism, we aren't simply being controlled by our working conditions and wages, by how much we make and what we do, but by status coercion. That is, if you want to attain a livelihood. Through this status coercion, you are given rights and privileges that drive your desire to work more than pay or benefits. And this status coercion is playing out among a myriad of workers, from prison laborers to graduate students to welfare workers and college athletes. We'll find out about what these workers have in common in today's work. Work world when we speak in a few with sociologist Erin Hatton, author of Coerced Work Under Threat of Punishment. Erin is associate professor of sociology at the University of Buffalo, author of the 2011 book, The Temp Economy from Kelly Girls to Permitemps in Post War America. She also edits Prison Slash Work Labor in the Carceral State. An interdisciplinary volume which examines the multiple and multi-directional intersections between mass incarceration and labor and employment in the U.S. today. Prison work is under contract with University of California Press and is expected to be in print sometime next year. You can follow Aaron on Twitter at E.E. Hatton, that's h a t t o n e e Hatton, and you can find out more about Aaron at AaronHatton.com. Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is What are you reopening
0: too soon? What are you reopening too soon? Too soon or too early? Uh, Ronaldo's
1: probably having a fit over there. Too.
0: It don't matter. Early? Too soon. I already wrote too soon.
1: No. Are you already getting getting responses? Uh, Not yet. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuckatthisishell.com or alexatthisishell.com. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins 10, 10 This Is Hell subvertising stickers so you too can subvert whatever the hell you want to, see how others are subverting the world with This Is Hell subvertising stickers at our Instagram account at This Is Hell Radio. Alex, I have some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, the question from hell for this week is What are you reopening too soon? What are you reopening too soon? Leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, Facebook.com/This Is Hell Radio, or email it to Chuck at This Is Hell.com or Alex at This Is Hell.com. Or DM us your answer via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. Just have your response to this week's question from hell by the end of tomorrow's Thursday's show, when we will be announcing this week's winner right after Jeff Dorchin delivers the moment of truth. This is not the media. This is hell. Yesterday, like I was saying, I was out sick. Because of a chronic digestive issue that causes intense pain when it flares up, makes me very lightheaded, makes me weak, makes me very tired. I can't sit up straight or else I'm in intense pain. Standing is okay. Uh, Kind of sitting down with my legs crossed is kind of okay. Laying down is very painful. It flares up every so often due to whatever I ate causing some sort of inflammation in my stomach that if I described would make you want to go back into bed and hide under the covers. It could be caused by dairy products, but for me it's often due to eating something that's not good for me in the first place. In other words, stuff like corn syrup inside of anything instead of cane sugar, food with preservatives and additives so the food is cheap or can travel a far distance. Apparently, I'm not the only one. Yesterday, when I posted that I believe the culprit this time in causing my intestinal infection was a frozen pizza, 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 which was loaded with ingredients I could not pronounce, and 48 hours later, I was doubled over in pain. Listener Greg G posted, Dude, I hear you. Similar thing for me and migraines, stupid food being pumped full of crap. But Greg didn't say crap and used a far better word to describe what goes in our food nowadays and then ends up in my stomach, causing pain, apparently. Lisa L. suggested online that I have the bacteria Helicobacter pylori. Apparently, these germs can enter your body and live in your digestive tract. After many years, they can cause sores called ulcers in the lining of your stomach or the upper part of your small intestine. For some people, an infection can lead to stomach cancer. Thanks, Lisa. That makes me feel a lot better. Germs are in my body, waiting to be provoked. And they will inevitably give me stomach cancer. At least I got that going for me. Yeesh. But my doctor said I don't have ulcers, so maybe... Lisa, I don't have helicobacter pylori. Martin F. was concerned, writing, "Uh Uh-oh, you got the Rona, which I did not, and I have breaking news on testing my girlfriend, who in early March suffered through a fever and chest pains and body aches and came out the other side without having to be hospitalized. She got her antibody test back, and they have returned negative. She did not have the Rona back in March, What she had, we don't know, but it wasn't the virus, which sucks because a positive result might have meant she has already gone through all the suffering that she will go through and that she might have to not get it again. She might not get it again and that she might be able to give those antibodies to others, people like me, so they may fight the virus. But apparently that's not the case. We realize it doesn't mean when you get your antibody test and you test positive, it doesn't mean you are completely safe and can get on with your life Coughing on other people Not washing your hands And getting up in everyone's grill But it might mean that you are at least out of the woods The woods where the pathogen kills people Thanks to Philip C. and Dan K. For sending along their get well wishes as well And for Krimsky, who wrote Get up Chuck I heard you're ill Get well We need your madness back At least somebody needs my madness Because it's driving me freaking crazy After Alex posted that my itis was kicking in again, actually it's an osis, but itis does sound better, Marco wrote, Maybe the Malort has expired, but no one can tell the difference, and Marco is kind of right. Spoiled Malort is what made Malort famous. Malort had gone bad and had gotten into the market, and people thought that was how it was supposed to taste, that horrible, bitter, awful taste. When the properly prepared Malort finally got out after several years, Nobody liked it, and they've now reproduced that bitter, awful flavor that every sucker, including Marks like me, has grown to love. Amanda Kay wondered if maybe the mushrooms were past their expiration date. First, Amanda, that was my neighbor who took magic mushrooms and mistakenly believed his trip was the coronavirus. And secondly, he's not sharing, and considering his reaction to the shrooms, I don't think I'm really all that interested. Dan T. asked if I ate too many ribs, as is the general cause of the classical-itis. No, Dan, I have not had that kind of post-meal-itis in a long time, and I really, really do miss it. Maybe we'll finally break down and either go pick up some food from a neighborhood restaurant or get it delivered, because following a battle with the osis, a fight with the itis... Oh, who's kidding who? Who? You don't fight the itis. You happily surrender to the itis. And that surrender, followed by a nap on the couch, sounds really damn good right now. We also had an an email last night, late last night, that was sent to Chuck at thisishell.com from Eric. Eric writes, I'm a reporter at Bloomberg News. I'm working on a story about the future of leftist podcasting now that Bernie Sanders' campaign for president is over. I'd be curious to get your perspective if you have some time to talk on the phone. If so, let me know when what time might work out for you. So I'm going to be talking to Eric from Bloomberg News either this afternoon or tomorrow afternoon. Afternoon, We're trying to set up a time and when to talk. I'll tell you what happens when we do talk. But what is the future of leftist podcasting without Bernie Sanders? I don't know. Probably a lot like the past of leftist podcasting, long before Bernie Sanders ever announced that he was going to run for president. Is there some impression that leftist podcasting started with Bernie Sanders? That before 2015, there was no leftist podcasting? Because This Is Hell started podcasting, that is, archiving our show and streaming online after airing and streaming live, on September 15th, 2001, four days after 9-11, 14 years before Bernie Sanders was running for president. We'd been streaming live for at least a year or two prior to that. While we were one of the very earliest podcasts held, they weren't even calling them podcasts yet because the iPod hadn't been invented yet. It didn't come out for another five weeks after our first podcast or whatever we were calling podcasts back then. So I'm very curious what Eric from Bloomberg News has to ask me about the future of leftist podcasting now that, heaven forbid, Bernie Sanders is no longer running for president. Because I'm not too certain that the left was Bernie Sanders, or Bernie Sanders was the left. But I am very certain that is the way the media defined the left for the last several years. And now that Bernie lost, the media can ignore the left until the left again engages in traditional electoral politics with a candidate that corporate media will immediately deem unelectable, dismissing the leftist candidate's ideas as utopian and unachievable. And the Democratic Party will dismiss their plans for universal health care, free in-state college tuition, and the end of student debt because they can be ignored until the next inspirational candidate comes along to motivate people to vote, to donate to the Democratic Party, only to have those new young voters co-opted by the old machine that likes things just the way they are here at what they see as the end of history. See, I told you. This is hell, and you can contact us with your thoughts, suggestions, and insights at chuckathishell.com at via Twitter at this is hell radio and on Facebook at facebook.com slash this is hell radio. Coming up, the new power being imposed upon workers that has changed the entire workplace dynamic. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, What are you reopening too soon? What are you reopening too soon? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins 10 This Is Hell subvertising stickers. Live from the nightmare of want, this is is Hell, there's a way in which many of our workplaces are controlled that is often overlooked, and by understanding these strategies, we can better understand our workplace and the economy in general. Here to tell us all about the power of status coercion, sociologist Aaron Hatton is author of Coerced, Work Under Threat of Punishment. Welcome to This is Hell, Aaron.
2: Hi, Chuck. Thanks so much for having me here today.
1: Erin is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Buffalo. She is also author of the 2011 book, The Temp Economy, from Kelly Girls to Permitemps in Postwar America. You can follow Erin on Twitter at E.E. Hatton, that's H-A-T-T-O-N, and you can find out more about Erin at Erin Hatton. You write about Apache, a 34-year-old black American man who recently finished his second stint in a New York State prison. Like all able-bodied prisoner in New York State, Apache was required to work in prison. He worked six hours a day in the mess hall, preparing and serving food, washing dishes, scouring the kitchen, for which he was paid 15 to 17 cents an hour, nearly $13 every two two weeks. Then you quote Apache, saying that earning these wages in prison, quote, You can can convince yourself you're in a good position as far as getting by because you're locked down. You don't have to pay your light bill and this and that and the other, but it's still slave labor at the end of the day. So Section 1 of the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution states neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction so slavery and forced labor is illegal in the United States except when it is being used as a punishment for a crime is that unique in the world when it comes to like nations and say the G20 how unique is it for the United States to punish prisoners with forced slave labor conditions or is that very typical
2: It is generally unique. Um, There are not many places in which slavery is an explicit—I mean, sorry, not slavery, prison labor—is an explicit exception to the abolition of slavery, as it is in the U.S.
1: So that always brings up the old chestnut that we love to mention on this show every so often. Uh, one of our very favorite quotes, and that's the 19th century writer Fyodor Dostoevsky saying the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. What does this say to you about our degree of social and cultural development, our civilization in the U.S. when we allow forced labor and slavery in prisons as part of our justice system?
2: Um, that's a great point. And, uh, it Prison labor is a microcosm of the broader problems of prisons and mass incarceration in the U.S., which is, as Dostoevsky says, an indication of just how far we still have to go, how in so many ways uncivilized we are as a country. Um, look, behind bars, prisoners are. Um, all able-bodied prisoners are generally required to work, um, though typically they are not given meaningful jobs to do, right? They are put to work. Um, Usually they help keep the prison running. They serve food, they clean bathrooms, um, they paint the walls, they wash the windows. Um, And for many prisoners, don't get me wrong, this can be a an okay way to pass the time because they are given so little else to do they are given so few opportunities for gaining meaningful skills and for learning and education um so it's not entirely bad at least from the prisoners perspectives but as i talk about in my book um their bosses behind bars the corrections officers who oversee their labor have enormous power over them so that if prisoners don't comply with any demand no matter what that demand is right if that demand is to clean the floor with a toothbrush for some kind of um, uh, assorted punishment and if the prisoner does not comply then they can be put in solitary confinement put in an enclosed and segregated cell unable to see friends unable to see families their family um, for as long as the prison deems fit right there is no limit on the extent uh, uh, the amount of time which they can be put in solitary confinement for something as little as refusing to clean the floor with a toothbrush. Um, So corrections officers have a great deal of power over prisoners' lives behind bars, but also over their labor behind
1: bars. So, But how much of that is coerced and how much of that is accepted? Because you quote Apache saying it's not supposed to be a camp, it's not supposed to be a happy place, we're in prison, we're not supposed to come in and kick our feet up. Apache seems to accept his slavery and forced labor conditions as a justifiable punishment for crime. So why do even the prisoners view this kind of slavery as a justifiable punishment for crime when slavery in and of itself is an injustice?
2: That's a great question. And the simple answer is it is both coerced and often accepted by prisoners and officers alike. Like, look, prisoners, like everyone else in American society, they are of American society and they have been enculturated with the views that infuse our culture, including that prisoners don't deserve, well, anything. They certainly don't deserve any of the right and respect that we impart to. citizens, people outside of prison. Um, so Apache, like many of the former prisoners that I interviewed for this book, um, kind of accepted their second, sta- second class status um, as prisoners, right? They believed that this type of slave labor and Apache said over and again, don't get me wrong, this is slave labor. Oh, believe you me, this is slave labor. But what do you expect? We're behind bars. So at once he kind of viewed it as improper as slave labor as the the forced labor um to the point of punishment for prisoners but also accepted it because that is what we as a culture believe is acceptable for prisoners
1: and so despite the low wages despite any kind of corporate exploitation might be going on the prisoners want to do this work would would not working be worse for prisoners would them doing nothing, would that make them feel worse about their lot in life because they were not working and not, therefore, seeing themselves as productive citizens?
2: Well, for prisoners, there are no simple answers, right? So if it's a stark contrast between doing something with your time and doing not being able to do absolutely anything, then, yes, I would say the doing something is generally better um, in large – because the time passes so slowly and because as a culture we impart such importance and dignity to work, we find as a people and myself included, we find great value and meaning in our labor. Um, and so being able to find that, and many prisoners do, is an important way of kind of taking part as a, a trying to do your part as a productive citizen behind bars in as much as one can. But look, those aren't the only options, right? Um, and by the way, it is nonetheless economically exploitative because if prisoners were not actually performing all of the labor that they do behind bars, Um, then prisons would have to hire civilians and officers to do that work. Um, So states and private prisons and the federal prison system are saving enormous amounts of money um, by using prisoners to do this work. Um, So, yes, it is exploitative. And yes, it is coercive. And yes, sometimes, though not all of the times, prisoners also believe that they should have to do this or that it is worthwhile to do it. And although some bosses behind bars are great and, and um, treat their prisoner workers, incarcerated workers with respect and dignity, many, many don't um, and wield harsh and severe punishments um, like they're handing out candy.
1: Do Americans in general, outside of the prison uh, workplace and outside of the other workplaces that you talk about, do Americans define themselves by the work they do more than anything? Are we our work? And to you, what does that say to you about our culture, our society, the civilization we have built and are complicit in at this moment? Are we our work?
2: Um, You know, generally we are. Um, we value work as a culture we value it quite highly and in many ways we define our sense of value our sense of self-work by the type of work that we do and you can see this in all sorts of ways but people really kind of I carve out their identities in large part by their occupation and you can even see this for people who don't have jobs like no I am uh, the CEO of the household right they so they kind of import this um, corporate identity into the unwaged work which is not insignificant it's no, it's incredible amount of work into the household into the unpaid domestic sphere um, so yeah we we place a ton of importance in work we I carve out our identity identities through work. Um, and this does kind of change the power dynamics when bosses have the power to kind of take away those identities from us and take away that dignity from us in the world of work.
1: It's hard not to think about COVID-19 and all of the outbreak that's happening around us and the politics around it. Do you think that the protesters we are seeing at state capitals That they want economies to reopen because of this idea of defining themselves by being productive, defining them by their work. Or is this merely people need money?
2: Well, it's, you know, it's really hard to extricate those things, right? This is an intense crisis and it's a health crisis and it's an economic crisis. Um, and you could also say that when people face unemployment, that provokes an identity crisis. Um, and so all of these things are kind of converging at once. And it's hard to um, kind of pull out the, the different pieces of this crisis. But it is true that um, people are terrified. Um, and people want to, to, are trying to kind of get out of this downward spiral, however they see fit, in ways that aren't always probably the best way forward, at least from my perspective, right? I I see the health crisis as driving this. And so we need to kind of address that first before we can really effectively um, stop the economic crisis. But there is something to the fact that when people are unemployed, when people have carved out their identities around their employment, um, it does precipitate this kind of identity crisis that they, they, And because we have such a bootstrapping culture, right? We, we need that. We believe in personal responsibility and the need to pull yourself up with your own bootstraps. Um, having access to work, to meaningful work is, is a centerpiece of that cultural belief system.
1: You're right, because they are prisoners, they can be required to work, but because they are prisoners, they are not protected as workers under labor and employment law. Like enslaved people in years past, American prisoners can be compelled to work while being denied the rights and protections of productive workers, while also condemned for not being such workers. As Apache said, they're once slave labor and doing nothing. It is this cultural and legal intersection of working but not being recognized as workers that allows prisoners labor and that of others, as we will see. To be characterized by coercion. Now, this reminded me of last year's wildfires in California and how prisoners were being compelled to help fight the fire alongside highly skilled firefighters as the state had far too few professionals to stop the conflagration. One story that came out was that the prisoners who we knew were getting little pay and were protected by few rights also could not use that experience after prison to apply those skills Learn to a post-incarceration livelihood. That's what the LA Times was reporting at the time. How much can prisoners apply the skills they have learned to a post-prison job or even a career? And to what extent do prisoners become essential workers in times of disaster and crisis?
2: That's a great question. So at least until now... For the most part, the work that incarcerated workers do behind bars does not translate easily to work post-incarceration. They may, so in New York State, for instance, they may kind of get a series of certificates showing that they completed some kind of minimal training program or work experience um, in, I don't know, asbestos removal or something like that. But the fact of the matter is, given all of the barriers that are put in place um, for hiring people who have been incarcerated, that experience just does not translate. It does not mean um, that they're going to get work behind bars. And we see this again and again, certainly with firefighters who have direct experience on the line fighting these fires and were integral to keeping the California fires at bay, to stopping them. Yeah, they can't translate that into experience behind bars, despite the pervasive rhetoric otherwise, right? Again and again, we see prison systems saying, um, this is going to give them skills, this is going to give them something to do, keep them busy, and get them job after incarceration. And yet, that's not what pans out.
1: You also write that prisoners' contradictory Position at the crossroads of Compulsory labor, slave labor And culturally constructed idleness Doing nothing is not unique. Take for example Workfare workers, welfare Recipients who are required to work 25 To 35 hours a week in order to receive Public assistance. They are assigned to jobs Often janitorial or bookkeeping in nature In public parks, nonprofit Organizations, government agencies, and in New York City at least, subway stations, but their Labor is construed as work experience Rather than work. As a result Instead of wages, their work garners a relatively meager combination of cash benefits, rental and utility assistance, and food stamps, now SNAP, along with childcare during work hours. But those who are on workfare are not criminals. They're not convicted criminals. They're not prisoners. How does their workfare not violate the 13th Amendment? What does it say to you about workfare when those who are not incarcerated are treated similarly to prisons, prisoners who have been convicted of crimes?
2: Well, the welfare system would say that they're not forced to work. Um, And, uh, you know, it depends how you define that word forced or coerced. Technically, that's true because, in fact, they can say, oh, okay, I don't want welfare. But is that a free choice? Of course not. Um, So for many people, in order to get these kind of key elements of the social safety net, cash benefits, uh, electricity vouchers, utility vouchers, SNAP benefits and so on, they need to perform quote work activities. So this is a kind of a section of labor. It is in fact work, but it's carved out of employment law um, so that they don't like get minimum wage and unemployment because they call it work activities because they say it's part of the welfare system, not the employment system.
1: So you also point out that despite their labor, workfare workers like prisoners are seen as dependent on the state and are culturally disparaged as being a drain on the economy and a burden on taxpayers. Indeed, workfare workers themselves often take part in the disparagement, echoing the prisoner Apache's reprobation of prisoners. As workfare worker April Smith said of other welfare recipients, a lot of people laying around, they don't do anything. Is that what being rehabilitated in prison is today, accepting that you are a drain, a burden, Who, if you're not a worker, you're not anything? Is that what is needed for society to accept convicted criminals back from incarceration to accept themselves as a drain, a burden on society?
2: Um, In some cases, uh, certainly some prisoners accepted that, just as some workfare workers accepted that. Again, workfare workers, just like prisoners, are deeply of this American culture, which views welfare as bad, right? But we've only carved out certain programs as quote unquote welfare. Well, other programs that help people say student loans are not constructed as welfare, right? So those programs that we construct as welfare as bad, and we see those people as use the people who use that system um, as bad people, as immoral people. And by the way, they are also criminalized just as prisoners are because they're and at least in contemporary America, they're presumed to be defrauding the system. So we look upon them as suspected criminals, um, trying to unfairly take advantage of the system. Um, and so we think they need to be punished. We think they need to be surveilled and we think they need to be put to work because the overriding assumption is that if we don't make them work, coerce them into working, um, picking up trash in the parks or cleaning the subway cars, then They don't really want to work. But that's, in fact, the opposite of the case. Just as for prisoners, all of the people that I interviewed sought meaningful employment, right? Again, they are of this culture, which believes deeply in the power and dignity and importance of work. They craved meaningful employment, but that is not what they found um, in their workfare assignments and behind bars.
1: So is this kind of model... Uh, uh, that is applied to prison labor and workfare, is that creeping in any way into other ways in which the government doles out services? Is the future, is our future, a future of working for our Medicaid and our Social social Security, uh, working uh, for services that we want to get from the government?
2: Well, we, as a culture, certainly have organized a lot of policies around uh, work a lot of social benefits, right? So we don't have um, kind of, uh, we don't have universal basic income, right? We, ha- until recently, have not had health benefits that were readily available that were not attached to employment. Um, same with Social Security. So it is true that we have um, attached very strongly many kind of what some might call basic human entitlements um, to Employment in various ways and certainly welfare um, benefits are a prime example of this and in recent years with the trump administration they've been only talking about expand expanding that so that in order to even get. medicaid or snap benefits people are going to be assigned to work fair, despite the fact that um, in point of fact most people who receive those programs are already working.
1: You mentioned universal basic income and even in the the expansion that we're seeing right now with unemployment insurance. Can that replace, can that fill the void that people may have right now in feeling like they are not productive workers in this time of crisis? Is money a replacement, an adequate substitute for labor in keeping the public feeling productive?
2: Um, No, I don't think so. Not in American culture. I mean, we really do find place a ton of value and dignity and work apart from the money right so we we desperately need the money of course um but if we were just to get a ubi which i am fully a proponent of that would not replace the dignity and meaning and sense of self-worth that people also find in meaningful employment
1: you also point out that like incarcerated and workfare workers College athletes and graduate students work but are not seen as workers. They cannot earn or earn much from their labor and their economic independence. Their ability to sell their labor and expertise is restricted. They, too, are culturally and legally constructed as economic dependents, amateurs and trainees gaining education and experience. Is all our future a future as a worker who is not a worker? Will we lose all worker and labor rights because we will no longer be defined as workers?
2: Well, it's a good question, and of course, one can never predict the future, but we have seen, I mean, this is of a piece of broader employment employer strategies, which, as we have seen, have been finding ways to carve out workers from those laws that were put together to protect workers, right? So now, many gig workers, for instance, are um constructed as independent contractors rather than employees. And that means they're not eligible for a host of labor employment protections, including um, unpaid sick leave and family and medical leave and um, unemployment benefits and so on. Um, So when we carve people, all these different groups of people. And when you look at them in isolation, you might think, oh, well, that makes sense. They're prisoners. Oh, well, that makes sense. They're getting welfare. Oh, well, that makes sense. They're students, right? They're grad students or they're athletes. They're getting so much. But when we look at them all together, it seems less like kind of idiosyncratic examples and more like a broader strategy of exclusion, trying to carve out people from the basic employment protections that we have coupled together to protect workers in America.
1: Is this simply a capitalist government acting like capitalist business, seeking to accomplish their goal as cheaply with as low cost labor? As any business would, when it comes to whether it's graduate students or college athletes or workfare participants or prisoners, is this all just about them trying to cut corners, trying to cut costs, just like business does? Are they just reflecting the capitalist society outside of government?
2: I think that that you could probably argue that that at heart, this is you know the basic capitalist strategy of exploitation, right, of, of extracting as much labor as possible at the lowest cost possible. Um, and so one strategy for accomplishing that end is to carve out people from those labor and employment protections, which impose costs on employers, right? So if we were to somehow imagine paying student athletes the value of their labor and time, um, most universities would probably not be able to run football programs, right? Um, same with graduate students, same with prisoners. The, the economic structure would look very different and in fact impossible based on how they're currently structured, right? They could not economically do it. So I think you're right at heart, this is kind of a basic capitalist uh, strategy to extract labor at minimal cost.
1: You identify key similarities between all of these groups, graduate students, college athletes, work, workfare participants, and prisoners who labor within prison. You identify, identify key similarities between them, not just their status as non-workers, but how the status shapes the power dynamics that define their workplaces. How can workers not being seen as workers affect the power dynamics at a workplace?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, and it's really kind of the centerpiece of what I examine in this book. So first, I just want to say as a caveat that I'm not suggesting in any way that, say, grad students are like prisoners or that student athletes are like prisoners, right? They're totally different groups of workers and they have very different sets of vulnerabilities and they've been marginalized in different ways and exploited in different ways. But I do argue that the type of power that their bosses can wield are similar and in part is because they are not seen as workers under the eyes of law or culture. Um, so because they're not workers, they don't have access to basic employment protections. They don't get minimum wage. They don't get unemployment. They don't get sick leave and so on. But also, um, the, their bosses, the corrections officers that oversee them or their coaches on the field or on the basketball courts, they're not, um, there's no like HR department kind of looking over their necks and there's no HR department to whom the workers themselves can go if problems arise in the workplace. Um, And so this means that there's very kind of, there's very little regulation of coaches power over athletes as a supervisor. There's very little regulation of corrections officers power over prisoners as bosses, as labor bosses. Um, And so, um, one of thing that arises from this is that it, when those bosses are abusive, when they're bad, bad apples, um, they can be really bad and there are no checks on their power. Um, but it also means that even when they're not bad apples, right, just as a matter of course, these bosses have a whole range of punishments they can wield over these workers, punishments which are entirely, entirely expected and accepted in these institutions. So like... If a grad student doesn't do basically what his boss, and they often call him his boss, his boss, his lab advisor says to do, then um, a whole range of consequences can ensue. Um, They can write him a bad letter of recommendation so that he won't get any future employment in that field. He might not be included in papers that come out of that lab, which can also ruin his career. He can be kicked out of the lab and therefore lose access to the subsidized education and this prestigious degree. Um, Same with athletes, right? They can not play you, which means you lose your chance to play at this elite collegiate level by the way, I looked at Division one college football players and basketball players. So they can lose playing time, they can lose recruitment opportunities. Um, They can also, of course, lose their scholarships and lose access to education. Um, Like I said before, prisoners can be put in solitary confinement. Workfare workers can lose total access to the social safety net, be kicked off welfare altogether. Um, So these bosses have enormous power over these workers' lives and families and futures.
1: You write that economic coercion is aptly named because it operates primarily through pecuniary compulsion. The same is true of physical coercion, which operates through corporal compulsion. While the workers in this book experience some degree of economic coercion, and in the case of prisoners, physical coercion, the type of coercion that permeates their labor does not operate through their pecuniary or corporal mechanisms. Rather, it operates through status. Their supervisors have the power to discharge them from a particular status as prisoner, this is what you were just pointing out, welfare recipient college athlete or a graduate student in good standing and thereby deprive them of the rights, privileges and future opportunities that such status confers. Thus, I argue that these labor relations are characterized by status coercion. I want to make sure that people understand what status coercion is. So to what extent is status coercion class coercion?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say it's different. Um, So Each of these uh, groups of workers that I study uh, occupy a particular status, right? It's just like a a social location in an organization. So it's like a student athlete. Um, They're not... Constructed as a worker, right? They are seen as student athletes, pre- oftentimes prestigious elite athletes who are lucky to get to be where they are. They get oftentimes, not all the time, but they often get free education um, as well as the chance to play at an elite level, right? This is a prized status and people from all class backgrounds can uh, at least ostensibly get this status, right? If they if they're good enough. Um, and so this status comes with all uh, a whole set of Rights and obligations right they have to go to practice every day for hours a day Um, and privileges they get all sorts of privileges as we know um but the, so the power that their coaches wield, their bosses wield over them is the ability to discharge them, remove them from that status, right? They no longer get to be an athlete anymore. They won't get to play, they'll lose their scholarship, they won't be recommended to professional recruiters, etc. So it's not about economic class per se, and it's more about being able to take advantage of the rights and status, the rights and privileges, and also even obligations that a particular status comes with. Now, the same is true of prisoners as well, right? Like, being a prisoner is not a status that any of us wants to attain. But once you are living behind bars... um, Maintaining one's status as a prisoner in good standing is incredibly important. It allows you to have visits from your family and use the phone to call your family, to call your children. It allows you to use the prison commissary to buy edible food and basic toiletries like deodorant and Tylenol. It allows you to go out and have recreation in the yard. It allows you to... um, just have socializing with friends and work and earn money behind bars, right? It allows for a host of things. So you maintaining one's uh, status as a prisoner in good standing is incredibly important. And also, by the way, it may allow you to be eligible for parole for getting out of prison early because good behavior, right? P- parole is predicated on good behavior. But behind bars, uh, officers can take away that status. can say, if you don't do what they say, if you don't pick up the poop off the ground with a tissue paper or without any equipment at all, if you don't clean the urinals properly or whatever with your bare hands, if you don't clean the floor with a toothbrush, whatever it is, if you don't comply, um, you can lose your status at good as a good prisoner and lose all of those privileges, those kind of basic human entitlements that become privileges behind bars.
1: You mentioned how the government has put in a lot of protections when it comes to economic coercion, but it hasn't done the same thing with status coercion. It just made me wonder, Aaron, are workers today paid with privileges, not wages, privileges which bosses have far more control over than they do wages? because. There are the protections for economic coercion that the government has put in place, but they haven't put in any place in status coercion. So this is a place where they can leverage their power and control.
2: I think that is certainly true to some extent. I mean, look, economic coercion is still very much alive and well, and it gives employers enormous power over workers, right? The ability to fire workers, the ability to promote or demote workers, the ability to put them on the schedule or to not schedule them at all. All of this is, you know, kind of the mechanisms of economic coercion, and it gives bosses a great deal of power. Now, as I as you mentioned, I do write in the book that we have put a series of protections in place to mitigate, to kind of lessen employers powers of economic coercion so that if you're let go from your job, you can get unemployment insurance. Right. Um, So but those protections are pretty weak, to be honest. and yet we have worked to mitigate that power. So so it is important to note that that power at least has been kind of recognized and sought to be mitigated at least to a certain extent. But that is not the case, as you noted, about status coercion, right? We we don't even have yet to recognize this as a form of employer power. And so in no way is it mitigated. It, a, a interesting example in the regular labor force is the use of um, non-compete clauses, Uh, among workers, so now more than ever, workers are being asked to sign non-compete clauses when they, at point of hire, Oftentimes, they don't even know that they're signing them. But what these clauses do is that if they leave their job, they are not allowed to find other employment in that field. This means that employers now have control not only of that particular job that they're doing, but also the workers' ability to leverage their labor market skills and experience to find new employment in that field. This is a form of status coercion in addition to economic coercion. And that is not at all mitigated in America today.
1: Does the state give cover for status coercion by protecting economic coercion through the law. Does the state allow the market to apply status coercion while pointing to their efforts and reining in economic coercion?
2: Um I, I think to a certain degree, yes. I mean, it is true that in all of these ways, in all the ways that status coercion is being implemented, and you know, I only name a few in my book, I think there's many more, much more to be found out about this form of labor coercion, um, but it is true that it is largely just endorsed, right? It's largely just accepted as a form of employer and ultimately state power over workers um, and it is really not mitigated in any way by policies.
1: Is status coercion, then, a kind of U.S. caste system, or am I going too far?
2: Um, let's see. That's a good question. I don't know. I, my first instinct is to say that you're going too far, but it is certainly true that status coercion can be an incredibly important and powerful source of employer power. Um, although it's leveraged against different workers in different ways. And it's used to combine with economic coercion against workers in different ways. But when they're combined, um, especially for people who are involved in the criminal justice system, here's another example. So um, for people who are on probation or parole, they often are required to find employment under threat of being incarcerated. Um, So they have to keep a job in order to pay their child support. Payments or uh, inc- criminal justice debt, um, but this gives their whatever their bosses are of their day labor or construction jobs incredible power over them because if they don't keep that job, they're going to prison. Um, so this is where we see kind of criminal justice punishments and economic coercion and, and status coercion combine to impose incredible power over these already quite vulnerable and disadvantaged workers.
1: So what uh, impact do you think that that has had on labor organizing for these workers and labor organizing in general? Because once you see labor organizing undermined in one sector, it often can bleed over into another.
2: It's absolutely the case that these kind of sticks of employer power can dampen Worker organizing, right? Because it just makes the workers more vulnerable, even more vulnerable to all the different sticks that employers can wield. Um, And of course, you know, behind bars, for example, uh, prisoners don't even have a right to organize at all. But certainly when they do, when they act collectively, and sometimes they do, um, then uh, prisons and officers can wield these sticks of status coercion um, to great effect. They but they beat them up. They put them in solitary confinement. Any uh, workers who came together to organize are going to separate them in prisons across the state, and so on. Um, so these levers of status coercion, of this punitive power that I talk about in this book, are are wielded to great effect to weaken employer, oh, sorry, worker power and worker organizing.
1: So uh, you also uh, you also write about how our lives are becoming. Uh, more, you know, everybody knows about this, but they're becoming more precarious, more insecure, more uncertain. But you point that status coercion is far more important in considering the workplace as we see it today. So what do we miss when we don't recognize the status coercion and we only focus on the abundance of literature on precarity and austerity?
2: I think we're just missing a really important part of the story It's not necessarily that this type of punitive power is more important than precarity. I mean, because in point of fact, economic insecurity is pervasive and an incredibly important and powerful and detrimental part of so many people's lives. Right. I don't want to take away the importance of that. My point here is that it's just not the only story. It's not the only thing that's going on. And in fact, status coercion can combine with economic coercion to increase workers' precarity, to increase workers' vulnerability in this economic landscape. Um, so we're only getting part of the story, rather than the whole story, about workers' vulnerability in this time.
1: How, how does status coercion create precarity? Because people might think of it as the other way around. How does one create the other?
2: Well, they can certainly combine in different ways. And and there's no, it's kind of like a chicken and egg here. They. It's hard to tell which comes first, but they certainly combine in different ways and in different spaces for different populations. Um, but some examples are, for instance, um, for the prisoners that I interviewed who coming out of prison, they said, how could I not take any job out here, any crappy job uh, when I worked for 10 cents an hour behind bars, right? So in effect, prison labor, crappy prison labor, prison labor that where their bosses had so much power over them. If they took one misstep, they'd be thrown in solitary confinement for an indefinite amount of time. They were primed and willing to accept any kind of crappy employment outside of bars, and in fact, they're often required to accept and keep such employment as a condition of their parole. The same is true for workfare workers. They too were readily primed to accept any type of crappy job um, uh, because they had experienced such degrading work as part of workfare, where they are openly degraded as being lazy and worthless on the job. Even we can see a similar example for graduate students, right? We think of um, PhDs as a really elite group, and in so many ways they are. Um, Yet in the sciences, the students I studied, um, after you get a PhD and you want to stay in academic work, um, they now essentially have to take on postdocs. Postdocs, which are comparatively low wage, at least for their skill set. They may, let's say they make $30,000 a year, which is not nothing, but which is not PhD-level wages. Um, And those postdocs are not lasting one or two years. They're lasting six, seven, 10, 12 years. They are primed to accept this substandard low-wage work, which, again, they are at the mercy of their lab bosses for an indefinite amount of time before they can leverage their skills to get the status work that they thought they were getting by getting a PhD.
1: You write, the state has expanded its punitive power in the context of neoliberalism, for as scholars have noted, neoliberalism in the United States has entailed not only state contraction, but also state expansion, a strategic shrinking of government combined with a surge of... Authoritarianism, the recent spread of labor precarity is associated with the former, state withdrawal from some categories of work through de- and re-regulation, declining labor standards, and de-unionization. What does that tell you about neoliberalism when it shifts resources from the state to to authoritarianism? What role does authoritarianism play in neoliberalism?
2: Um, as, as many scholars before me have pointed out, though it's not the common story of neoliberalism, but as scholars have pointed out, it's central component of this social economic trend, right? It's not just that a story of state contraction. It's not just taking away resources from people, say, through welfare retrenchment. That has happened. And at the same time, it has also happened that those state resources have been put into Prisons, the criminal justice system, um, surveilling and punishing people on the streets through stop and frisk and so on um, and prosecuting them. So it is this combined story of at once taking away from welfare and benefits and on the other hand, at the same time, um, moving forward with a surge of uh, authoritarian punishment and surveillance
1: This has been a fascinating conversation, and this is a fantastic book, Aaron. We've been speaking with sociologist Aaron Hatton, author of Coerced Work Under Threat of Punishment. Erin is editor of Prison Work, Labor in the Carceral State, an interdisciplinary volume which examines the multiple and multidirectional intersections between mass incarceration and labor and employment in the U.S. today. Prison Work is under contract with the University of California Press and is expected to be in print sometime next year. She's also author of the 2011 book, The Temp Economy from Kelly Girls. My mom was a Kelly girl. to perm attempts in post-war America. You can follow Erin on Twitter at E.E. Hatton, and you can find out more about Erin at Erinhatton.com. One last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, Aaron, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You analyze the role that ideologies of immorality and privilege play in constructing, justifying, and sustaining status coercion and the labor regimes predicated on it. What role does status coercion play within What we see as white privilege and white supremacy here in the united states and how dependent is the u.s economy or even our and society in general on that kind of status coercion
2: um i think it is an important part of our current economy it's certainly not the only element but it is a key piece that has not been identified yet until uh my book um and I do think that whiteness and race play a really important role in constructing this form of coercion and how it plays out for workers on the ground. So for those institutions that are racialized as black, such as prisons and the welfare system, then the punishment that punishments that bosses can wield in those institutions are incredibly severe. Um, and it, incredibly detrimental to the workers' lives and to their families' lives in long-term ways. Now, for those workers who labor in institutions that are racialized as white, such as graduate students, they still face status coercion to be sure, but that kind of white-based privilege also changes the type of punishments that their bosses can, can wield. Certainly they can't put them in solitary confinement as they can behind bars, and they can't kick them on, off welfare as they can in the welfare system. So race plays a very important role in how this type of employer power plays out on the ground for workers.
1: Aaron, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show. This is a fascinating book and all of our listeners should check this out because as you were saying, this is the first time that I've ever seen this discussed, this status coercion. And it's really important in understanding our workplace dynamic as it exists, especially under neoliberalism today. Thank you so much for being on our show this week, Aaron.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure.
1: Sociologist Aaron Hatton, author of Coerced Work Under Threat of Punishment. Find out more about Aaron at our website, aaronhatton.com. That's H A T T O N. Wait, let me spell that whole thing out for you because it's E R I N, Aaron. H A T T O N.com. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about. Money, so you do the math. This is hell. This week's question from hell is What are you reopening too soon? What are you reopening too soon? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, Facebook.com/slash This Is Hell Radio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or you can email it to either of us at Chuck at This Is Hell.com or Alex at This Is Hell.com. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins 10 This Is Hell subvertising stickers. Alex, do you have any answers to this week's question from hell?
0: Yeah, this was Chris from Hell. What are you reopening too soon? What are you reopening too soon? Mark AC says, my mind. It's a great probability that everything is opening right on time. (laughs) Kevin C says, the trepanation stitches. gross, gross. Uh, Zoe H says, the weed store, Taco Bell, and Steam store never closed. So I'm not sure what all this reopening everyone is talking about (laughs) is. Uh, Rob R says, my trauma history. (laughs) Lisa B says, the snack drawer. Damn, you got a whole drawer?
1: Uh, Scott S. says, this damn Facebook app, Fabio... I, I I'm was i cat-sitting for somebody, as you know. Uh, I opened up one of their cupboards. I found a five-pound container of Jolly Bellies. Oh, shit. <laughs> I know. I was so tempted to eat. Uh,
0: assorted flavor. What kind of flavors? A million been? flavors, like all of them. Okay, mm, oh, right. I'll talk to you after the show. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Fabio L. says, so uh, what are you reopening too soon? What are you reopening too soon? Fabio L. says, hentai-corona-collection.zip. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> And uh, finally, one last one. What are you reopening too soon, Dan K. says? My big fat mouth.
1: <laughs> Alex, will have more of your answers to this week's Question from Hell on tomorrow's show. And we will be announcing a winner after Jeff Dorchin delivers the moment of truth on Thursday's show, as we do each week. Speaking of which, Alex, who is on tomorrow's Thursday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 a.m., just like today, today's show here. on uh, this Lucas
0: is all- Kerner is going to be back on the show. I'm really excited to talk to him, but he will not be in Venezuela this time because of coronavirus. So he is in Santiago de Chile, and he's going to be talking to us about uh, corona in chile and then i i'm assuming those dudes who got arrested or is uh, de- detained by the maduro government uh this contractor
1: because i'd heard earlier this week that the that the maduro government was complaining about uh news that they or reports they were getting of terrorists being in venezuela and they were searching them out at the time so that was earlier this week i didn't know something actually came of it awesome man i'm looking forward to where is uh lucas uh, writing right now anyway
0: uh, Venezuela analysis,
1: and fair, FAIR.org. So he's got stuff at both. Okay. Yeah. So tune in tomorrow's show, streaming live, 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com. We're going to continue our series of reports from past guests, contributors, and correspondents on This Is Hell and finding out what's happening with coronavirus, where they are. We continue it this week with Lucas Kerner, who usually reports to us from Venezuela. Instead, this week he'll be reporting to us from Chile. So tune in to tomorrow's show at 10 a.m. to listen to it live streaming, or you can listen to the podcast posted at around 2 p.m. Chicago time to hear not only Lucas, but more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Find out what's happening on our Patreon podcast this week and to hear Jeff Dorchin deliver a moment of truth. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, Gaptooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing. And thanks to Erin Hatton for being on to discuss her book, Coerced. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell.
0: Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.